I'm Adam Morton. I am a pastor at a Lutheran church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And by the way, nobody here has mentioned this yet, but yesterday was the 500th anniversary of Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, which should mean a lot to you people. If it doesn't, that's okay. I'll recommend you some books. But for me, that's a big deal. That's like much bigger than last October 31st and the supposed Reformation anniversary. Nah, yesterday was it. Anyway, so I'm a Lutheran pastor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, among other things. I'm also a PhD student in theology, which is a weird kind of dual role for me to have right now. And it leads to me writing strange academic papers and then thinking that I could turn them into presentations for Mockingbird. Which might be a really bad idea, but we'll see where this goes. I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be a little bit of fun. So what I'm writing about is, uh, well, it's, it's the image of God. That's, that's sort of the area I'm working in now. Humanity as created in the image of God. And the most obvious question to ask about that is, okay, what is it? The problem is it's a really hard question. So I call this, I don't identify as human. We'll get to that. The hidden image of the hidden God, which is a little bit, sounds like a little bit of a heady title. We'll get to what this is. Um, first, I want to direct your attention to, especially if you look up and to the left, I think you get a clearer view of it. I don't know why the graphic in the center shifted, some sort of formatting thing. I'm not going to worry about it. I have done my best to recreate for this title slide the cover of the 19, I think it's the 1981 Dungeons and Dragons basic set red box with the cover art by Errol Otis, which I've screwed up. But I even, here's the thing, I made them install fonts on this machine so that the entire presentation uses the fonts of the early 80s Dungeons and Dragons books. I know you guys care about that. I did that. I did it for me, and I'm not apologizing for it. So we're going to talk about the image of God. Well, let's start. There's an easy place to start on this. Here we go. So we get Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. I've fiddled with the translation just slightly to make a few things pop out. They're not hugely important for this talk, but we'll get to it. Then God said, let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created Adam in his image, Adam, me. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I wanted to bring out sort of the interchange between singular and plural there. It's left kind of ambiguous. I also like that Adam is here a generic term, right? It's the human being as such. It's not the individual one dude we see in Genesis chapter two yet. Exactly. Um, it's also, and I hear I'm thinking about Chad Bird's wonderful talk earlier today. It's also very closely connected to the Hebrew word for dirt. And so you've got your dirt man here. But we've got this seminal passage for talking about Humanity as created in the image of God, and this all seems easy. Okay, here it is. Now we know what it is. The Bible says, so again, what is it? Well, 
Everybody knows this passage. When I say everybody knows, I just spent two weeks in the UK and talking to, yeah, some people who were grad students in theology and to professional theologians, but also just talking to random Brits, most of whom don't go to church. And yet, even one Muslim guy who isn't religious at all, but he was, you know, he grew up Muslim, they know what this is. At least they think they know what this is. They've heard of this humanity created in the image of God thing. This is one of those things that I'm not sure you can expect someone to know what it is, but it is not at all uncommon for people with very little connection to the church to at least have heard of this. They know this is the sort of thing that religious people, that people who believe that humans were created by God, believe. Christians generally seem to know this. Muslims actually seem to know this. Jews seem to know this. They ought to. It's in their book. Um, atheists often know this. They frequently inverted it, right? But that's the accusation that we've created God in our image. So you look at Michelangelo's picture here and you might wonder, why isn't this considered utterly blasphemous? Do we have the same kind of face on God as on, on, as on Adam? And the reason, of course, is this strange couple of verses in Genesis. Now again, you can make the accusation, well, Michelangelo is just putting his own face on God, but it's, there seems to be some warrant for doing that. And so we have a point of contact here between God and the human being, and this point of contact seems to do a lot of work. This phrase, image of God, it gets used in the history of Christian theology. It gets used in various ways. We're talking about really a shocking number of different things. When I say it, different things, like, well, you know, everybody knows what this means. It's obvious, right? Well, what is it? You go back to ancient authors in the church, and they would often say things like that it has to do with reason, or free will, or love, or all three of them, as some kind of mirror of the Trinity. That's what Augustine said about it. Or maybe that it has to do with our, not just our relation to God, but our relation to one another, perhaps as male and female, or perhaps human relations in general, and this is something that God has too, because God is related to himself within the Trinity, and this gets very, very complex very fast. Or maybe it has to do with our capacity for self-transcendence, that what a human being is is the sort of creature that can build himself up, that can become more. Maybe it, it, it's the ground of human dignity, of saying that we all have inherent value and worth because in some way we are like God. And so it's a foundation for a kind of a universal ethic that respects human rights and understands that all people are of value. Or maybe, maybe it's our has to do with our, rather than a part of us, it has to do with our office, our role, our function within creation. Um, the Genesis 1 word for this is dominion. Though that word gets questioned nowadays too, because what after all does dominion mean? Does this include humanity's sort of violent domination of, of nature and maybe even of one another at times? Or not that, if not that, what about reproduction? That, that we have within us the ability to produce life in some sense, or, or even sort of a more religious sounding word, priesthood, but it's a word that's all over 
the Old Testament and actually the New. These are all ways of getting at the image of God. They're all explanations that have not just have been offered, but you can find each and every one of them represented among Christian theologians today. Varying levels of popularity and nuance, but they're all out there. And I think if you go through these, you'd see that some version of them has made its way into the popular conversation about this somehow. So, uh-oh, we're running into trouble here. Our first question, what is this image of God? And having nine answers is as good as having no answers. And it gets worse. So is this thing, another possibility, this is one raised by the Protestant reformers. They said, well, whatever the image of God is, I think we've lost it in the fall. So we can kind of identify it with our original righteousness. And then others push back. Well, have we really lost it all the way? Is it gone? Is it erased? Is it simply covered over, just disfigured? Have we been damaged but not destroyed? What about language? What about our ability to speak like God speaks there in Genesis 1? I'm partial to that answer. But that doesn't mean that it's easy just to point to language and say, ah, there it is, the image of God. Of course, the trouble with each of these answers is that you can always identify somebody who doesn't have one of them. If I say it's language, what do I do with a human being who cannot speak? Are they human? If I say it's reason or free will, what do I say about those for whom reason seems limited at best? Is humanity disappearing as people decline in nursing homes? As dementia robs it from them? What about free will? Is this such an article of faith for us, and I think for many it is, that we have to say no, it's there, even when a person's will seems absolutely powerless to deal with the situations they've been enslaved to. So the ways that we define the image of God end up also being ways that we start determining who actually belongs within it and who doesn't, and implicitly who's really human and who isn't. Cult images, this is another possible background for this, another thing I'm interested in. I provided a couple pictures of them. They're a little small, you can't really see them. The first two, they're ancient images of Baal. When I say cult images, I don't mean like guys in black robes with their knives out, though that would be exciting. Um, And it would fit the Dungeons and Dragons theme a little bit. I probably should have had one. What I mean is religious images, right? the gods of the peoples of the ancient world. The Hebrew word for an image that's used in Genesis 1, let us make this human in our image, the word is tselem, is exactly the same word that's used in the commandment not to make any graven images. So there's, there's a religious dimension here. There's somehow God producing an image when humanity is prohibited from producing an image. This is fascinating. So I have three cult images there. The last one is Alice and Mac. If you don't understand why that's a cult image now, read the news. Um, So here's the problem when it comes to identifying the image of God, to actually looking at human beings, to examining the contents of the Bible and saying, well, this is it. We have no idea. Now, 
I think it's important to ask why we actually have no idea. Why things are this way that we have a dozen different proposals. It's not that none of them have any scholarly traction. Some are much more popular than others. In fact, a funny thing has happened in various points in the history of theology and biblical interpretation. Uh, we reached a point in the late 20th century where as sort of the disciplines divide themselves, Old Testament scholars had one picture of how this almost certainly had to be. And theologians had a very different picture. They each had reached a relative consensus on this idea of the image of God and they disagreed with one another. When you have the best and brightest looking at this and can't make up their minds, what do you even do with that? Or should we just leave it alone? But how can you leave it alone? It's, it's there in the language. As I said, this is the one of the few sort of Christian concepts that the guy on the street might have some passing familiarity with. We couldn't leave it alone if we wanted to. It's there. It's in the water. That led one theologian within the last decade to suggest, well, maybe all of these answers just kind of cancel each other out. So we come to a different suggestion. Maybe it's just Jesus in some way. Well, that's interesting. Doesn't it have something to say about human beings too? I'm skeptical of the answer that it's just Jesus. Genesis 1 doesn't seem to say just Jesus. I think it says something about me. So here's the problem. If only Genesis 1 were a little longer. If only the writers of Genesis 1 had, instead of giving us two verses dealing with the image of God and then it showing up again, I think a verse in Genesis 5 and another in Genesis 8, if instead of that, they had gone on for like a paragraph or an entire chapter about the image of God, really laid out their thoughts on the topic, then we would know. Then we'd be, we would be able to say exactly what it is for a human being to be made in the image of God. And we would understand our relation to God and we would understand who we are. And all of this would work. Now what that suggests is the problem is we haven't been given enough or the right kind of Bible. That is, it says that what we've got in Genesis 1 is deficient. It's not enough. Maybe they once upon a time had an idea what this meant, now we don't. And so we can just walk away from it. In fact, we might have to. I want to say something a little bit different from that. I want to say that there's something we're missing. And what we're missing is actually incredibly obvious. What we're missing is like a child playing hide and seek, you know, where they haven't grasped that if they can't see you, that doesn't mean that you can't see them. What we're missing is the stupidly obvious fact that when we start to talk about the image of God, we should notice that it doesn't show up for us in creation. That we can't see it. That I can't look within myself and say, ah, there it is, now I know what my connection to God is. That I can't look around at other people and automatically recognize it. That in fact, 
I don't know what this thing is. It isn't there to be seen. It's hidden. And what that means for it to be hidden is that there's an odd, uncomfortable connection to God implicit in this. To say this differently, what I mean is that the image of God isn't there to be known by looking for it. The harder I dig, the more the proposals as to what it means multiply, and the less sure I am that I have ever hit on it. And so there's no guarantee that we can kind of think our way up into it. In fact, quite the contrary. We're being given a piece of evidence here that we can't. But the connection this gives to God is a curious one, and it's one that sits in the 45th chapter of Isaiah. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, is what the prophet says. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. What it has to do with God is this, that of course, on an everyday basis, in our standard experience, in our looking around, we don't identify God properly or at all. We can't see him, we don't know him simply by looking. So there's a strange resonance there. It's an uncomfortable resonance because immediately as we start talking about a similarity between me and God, this puts us in unusual footing where we're tempted to say something either wildly ambitious, right? As if I really know all about this God or just to brush it away entirely and say, no, there can't be any connection between God and me. Now, we're talking a bit about God being hidden, or rather, as Isaiah put it, God hiding. I think that's an important distinction. If I say God is hidden, it might just mean, well, he's invisible, right? He's hard to see. Um, now here I'm really dating myself. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid was Beetlejuice. And in the opening sort of scenes of Beetlejuice, there's, um, the, the, the main characters are dead. Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin have died. And there are these people who have come to move into their house and they start wrecking it. They're doing these radical innova- uh, renovations that they don't like at all. And so they want to haunt them and drive them out. And so they start trying to pull off their faces in front of them and do all this stuff. But the problem is they're invisible. They can't be seen by the living. And so they have to work out ways of making their presence known. Saying God is hidden could almost start to sound like that to us. But that's not what the Bible says about it. No one else causes God to be invisible. There's no necessity to it. God hides. If he doesn't show himself, it's because he doesn't want to show himself in a given way. If you haven't seen this movie, by the way, rush out and see it. It's important. If the image of God is hidden from us, if it's being not just hard to see, but if it's being intentionally obscured, if what we've got in Genesis 1 is a word that 
on purpose refers to nothing in our day-to-day experience. then that means that there's something essential about a human being which we cannot see or know. And that means that the the human being as the image of God, as God's creation, is hidden and can only be an object of faith. It can only be heard and believed. Genesis 1 says it. It says it in black and white and it does not explain it. And so we have a conflict. It's a very basic conflict. And the conflict is between every day of our earthly lives as we look around at other sort of walking piles of meat and this strange word in Genesis 1 that says, image of God. And the conflict creates a temptation. The temptation is to start speculating, to offering guesses. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe it's reason, because that separates us from the animals. Maybe it's free will. Maybe it's whatever I like best about myself. That must be what makes me like God, right? This conflict actually explains a lot. Because the first thing it explains is that we aren't, why we aren't sure what a human being is. Let me see if I can elaborate that a little. (laughs) My boys, I love being their mom and taking care of them. One thing I'm always careful about is their sensitivities to certain ingredients in their foods. For Adam, that means watching just about everything he eats. For Scout, it means Blue Basics. Blue Basics is a limited ingredient diet for dogs with food sensitivities. It's made with proteins not common in dog foods and has no corn, wheat, dairy, soy, or eggs. With Blue Basics, Scout is definitely at his best. If your dog has food sensitivities, it's time for Blue Basics. I love this commercial. I absolutely love it. I mean, obviously on a surface level, she knows which one is her son. I think. I'm not sure which one she's going to send to school. But I mean, this is, this is a thing for us now, right? I mean, I, I don't mean just to sort of attack people who buy blue buffalo or call their pets fur babies or dress them up in clothes or, or say that, you know, well, no, I don't have children, I have, I have cats or something. I, I, I know and love people who say things like this. They drive me a little crazy, the things, not the people. Um, but that this is a real thing. It's a real confusion. It's confusion that's born out of the fact well, we can get attached to these animals. They, they can play a role in our lives that's human-like. In fact, the distinction between human and animal isn't, it isn't that great. I don't think the problem is as simple as that this woman, I know she's not a real person, but she could be, um, is that she thinks too highly of her dog or too little of her son. I think that's too simple a version of it. I think the problem is that if I posed the question to her or to you directly, what makes her son a valued human being in the image of God and her dog just a dog, she'd have a hard time answering it. I'm sure she'd have a hard time answering it because incredibly smart people have been working on problems like this for a long time and they routinely have a hard time answering the question. 
There's a lot that human life has in common with a dog's life. A tremendous lot. You get down to biochemistry, there's a lot my life has in common with a worm's life. You take it to more basic levels of chemistry or physics, there's a lot I have in common with dirt or with a rock, with any matter at all. So knowing what a human is is actually hard, really knowing it. Humanity's up for debate. This brings us back to Dungeons and Dragons. The image you have there is from the first edition of the player's handbook, from a page explaining the different races of beings you can create, or you can select from when you're creating a character. It's multiplied far beyond that. This is, like, this is the case in many, many games now. All sorts of kinds of video games, role-playing games, all sorts of things. You select a race, which doesn't mean race in the normal way we use the term, it means a species, right? Am I an elf or a dwarf? or a human, or a half-orc, or what am I? Here's the interesting thing about that. When you're describing all of these in the rule books, they're going to describe what an elf is like, what the characteristics of an elf are. They're going to describe what a dwarf is like, what a half-orc is like. You watch any fantasy movies, you know, Lord of the Rings stuff or whatever, you can get a broad caricature of what these different types of beings are supposedly like, but then you come to the question, what is a human like? I don't know. An elf is good at specific things, right? They live in trees and they shoot bows well and they're kind of magical. Dwarves live in the mountains and they're good at mining and they're sort of gruff. I get all that. What are the characteristics of a human? We're a blank. We're a nothing. This really has gotten debated a lot. So here you have an image from the period of abolitionism. This had to be argued. Am I not a man and a brother? This was a live question among thinking Christians. Is a black man the same kind of human that I am? People with the same Bible and the same resources to think about this question that I have. And they weren't sure about the answer. You should appreciate the, um, the, the, the trouble I went to to acquire the next image uh, while I was in my office at church because I had to Google sex robot. But this is a thing. I hope you've seen news stories about this, often in fairly trashy publications over the last year. Um, but speculation, as AI improves and as robotics improve, that everybody's assuring us, well, within a few years, it's going to be totally normal to date a robot, to have a romantic relationship with one. Is that possible? What does that mean? What is a human being if you can have a relationship with a computer program inside a robotic shell? Is there any actual difference there? Uh, Captain Picard, as locutus of Borg here, represents the transhumanist movement. This notion that by bolting on various kinds of electronics to ourselves we can enhance ourselves or even eventually uploading our consciousness into a purely digital form so that at some point we cross the line and are not simply human anymore. This is a thing. This is real. People believe this. This is a serious religious movement 
uh, in certain parts of the American West Coast, and it's not going away anytime soon. I love Elon Musk. He's such a disaster. It's just great. Elon Musk has an idea of what a human being is. He at least has a clear idea. He thinks we're really slow computers. You guys are pathetic because you don't type very fast and you don't do floating point addition very fast. Sorry. He's actually extremely anxious about this. I get the feeling every time I hear Elon Musk speaking on this matter of artificial intelligence, he's deeply worried that he's being replaced by the things that he has helped build. And he doesn't know what to do about that. He can't figure out what is of value about Elon Musk. And I identify with that because when you're the kind of person who's used to valuing yourself because of your ability to think and to do math, and I'll tell you a little story about myself. I was, I was great at mental math when I was a kid. I'm not great at it anymore. I'm way out of practice. I was great at it. When I played Little League Baseball, one of our sort of keeping loose things in the dugout was my teammates would give me ridiculous long numbers to multiply in my head, and I'd start spitting out answers. And I was right. I valued that about myself. And you know what? Your phone is so much better at it than I was. If this is what I thought made me special, what am I? I don't know. Here is Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. It's a great name. Oration on the Dignity of Man. I think this was in 1486. He was a brash 23-year-old in the Italian Renaissance. Speaking about what the human being is, the nature of all other creatures is defined and restricted within laws which we have laid down. You, by contrast, impeded by no such restrictions, may by your own free will, to whose custody we have assigned you, trace for yourself the lineaments of your own nature. This is God speaking to humanity. In other words, on this great chain of being, this great ladder of creation, I've doled out gifts and specific characteristics to everything there. To every kind of creature. I've got various aliens, Star Wars guys, and I've got another table from Dungeons and from the same player's handbook, the same Dungeons and Dragons book, explaining which kinds of professions you can take up depending on which and how far you can progress in them depending on which race you choose. The point is that everything else in creation has specific characteristics. A bear is strong and has claws and fur and its role in life is set out. But you, human being, I guess you could be anything. This is my great gift to you. This is the creator's gift to you. Uh, I don't know. You can do whatever you want. Find your own place. I can't tell whether that's supposed to be good or bad news. I know as a 23-year-old to Pico, it sounded like great news, right? You can be anything. You'll just have to make yourself into it. As a 39-year-old, I'm less sure that's good news. When I'm 65, I would bet I no longer think this even has a whiff of good news in it. Because all I'll be able to do is look back and say, well, look at the glory that is me. This is what I've made myself. I'm impressive. This brings us to one of my great intellectual loves right now. This guy's wonderful. I'm not going to recommend you read him. I'll explain why. This is Johann Georg Hamann. 
Hamann is the bad boy of the German Enlightenment. He was a friend and neighbor of Immanuel Kant. He had enormous intellectual influence on Germany in the, his generation and the generation or so that followed him. And probably almost none of you have ever heard of the guy. And that's not because you are not highly literate people, it's because he's hardly mentioned at all in the English-speaking world, and not even that much in Germany. And that's because his writings are totally impenetrable. They're strange. They're not just strange because they're in 18th century German, they're extremely strange for 18th century German writings. They're just unabashedly bizarre, which is what makes him wonderful. He had a kind of a religious conversion experience. He was an intellectual bright light who went to work for a friend's trading company that sent him on a business mission to London. This is in the late 1750s. And it goes south. He failed professionally, he failed personally, everything melted down for him on this trip. We don't have a detailed account of exactly what was supposed to have happened. Apparently he was supposed to negotiate with some Russians and it went poorly. I know nothing bad has ever happened to anyone trying to talk to Russians in London. He started reading the Bible and he came to a very, very different understanding of it and of himself than the spirit of the age was giving him. So he comes back to Germany, goes back to Königsberg, his hometown. And Christoph Behrens, his friend who owned that trading company, tries to talk sense into him, to sort of reel him back into the Enlightenment, to this sort of rationalist, progressive program that they were all part of, he thought. So he brings in Immanuel Kant, another Königsberg resident, to try to talk sense into him. Haman thinks this is hilarious. You brought in a philosopher to convince me that what has happened to me isn't real. That's cute. Sometimes he's portrayed as a kind of an anti-enlightenment figure. Um, Oswald Bayer, a theologian who's had some influence on people who've done Mockingbird stuff, calls him a radical enlightener. I like that term better. It's like he's one step ahead of everybody in that age. He's still a step ahead of us. So this is sort of his principle, how his uh, driving principle. He uses this weird term. I'm mostly going to skim this. This is from 1 Corinthians 4, 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied, and the word there is metaschematiza, these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. What on earth does that mean? It means that he writes incredibly difficult things on purpose. Instead of writing lengthy treatises that are designed to be clear on a topic, he'll write like eight pages. And half of it will be incredibly bizarre footnotes, some of them in Greek and Hebrew, that you'll have to look up, that are referring to a sort of a maze of other writings by other people. And if you don't know who he's writing to and exactly what he's after, you can't even tell what he's saying, because he'll publish this in a public place. And the whole writing will actually only be for the benefit of three people. And they'll have to know that it was for them. He makes you work. He makes you work at every step. There's nothing easy about his writing. And the purpose of making nothing easy in it is to offend. It's to disrupt. It's to purposely strike against the kind of rational clarity that was expected of an intellectual in his day. Because the things he wanted to talk about were too valuable to be conveyed in a way that was simply easy. 
He's writing a kind of highly academic parable for the 18th century. And he's doing it on purpose. And so he thinks in this process, there's a kind of a transference that takes place. There's an application to yourself that goes on as you find yourself in the midst of this mess that is his writing. And these tiny, short little pieces that are just impenetrable. Trying to find your way out again, you might actually start to realize something about the word of God and about you. And the touchstone of all of this, the center of all of his thinking, is what is called the communication of attributes, which is to say... The notion that the eternal, almighty God has stooped down to meet us in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And how these things are so tightly wound together that they cannot be pulled apart again. He actually takes this further than anyone I've ever read. He draws some of it from Martin Luther, but he, he, he really, at least in his rhetoric, pushes it beyond Luther because he, refer, he talks about this in several different ways. He speaks of the condescension of God the Father inhabiting all the things of creation. More on that in a second. He speaks of the condescension of the Son taking, taking up residence in human flesh, becoming really human, and not just becoming human, but taking on sinful flesh. God not being far away from sin, but in the thick of it. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit's condescension in inhabiting these strange, contradictory, messy pages of Scripture. He has an incredibly high view of the Bible and absolutely no illusions at all as to what an earthly, material, uneven human document it is. And holding those things together at the same time is the art of Haman's writing, the highest and the lowest, all the time, both together. He would have loved Mockingbird because it's always that. It's high culture and low. It's the best and the worst. And instead of holding them separate and sort of making, instead of making careful distinctions, we intertwine them because this is the truth. He's crazy hard to read, as I've said. What he is, is he is a uniter, not a divider. He's constantly trying to unite disparate principles. The intellect and the senses, what Kant and the Wolfian and Cartesian rationalists before him really wanted to separate, he will not separate. Reason and sensuality belong together. In fact, they mean nothing apart from each other. There's not even such a thing as reason divorced from sense perception and the sensuality of the body. That's a message for people uh, so committed to the notion of AI as representing something about human rationality. The spirit and the body, you don't pull these things apart. The religious and the profane, and he is extremely profane. He ends a very learned piece with a diarrhea joke in Greek. He talks in unbelievably blunt, offensive terms about sexuality in the midst of the most sort of, uh, it, of the most erudite um, passages in his writing. He's, 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 every button he can push, he's pushing. He's going to offend you. Style and content are intertwined for him then. You can't separate them. It's not just what he says, it's the way he feels he has to say it. 
And behind this all is God, the author and poet of creation and most especially of my life. That my life isn't a random occurrence, nor my set of choices. It is in some strange way a story being told by God. God as the author of my life is what he says. So what does this have to do with the image of God? Well, and he, Oh, and he speaks about the hiddenness of God and the human. I need to go back to that. There it is. God and the human being are both hidden. Now how? Why would I bring that up? What's going on here? This is from a piece from 1762 called Aesthetica in Nuce. Blind heathens acknowledge the invisibility which man has in common with God. Everybody knows there's something hidden about the human being which is in common with God. The veiled figure of the body, the countenance of the head, and the extremities of the arms are the visible schema in which we move along, yet in truth they are nothing but a finger pointing to the hidden man within us. There's something hidden in the human being. There's a truth we do not see. To his protege, uh, Herder, he said it more bluntly. He was kind of exaggerating when he said this. The pudenda strike me as the only bond between creation and creator. He's tying our sexuality, the hiddenness of our bodies, the parts of our body we're most anxious to hide, he connects with God. He doesn't actually think it's only there, but he wants to make a point. That whatever we have in common with God has to be something thoroughgoing about us. A truth about the whole human being, but a hidden truth. And so by connecting it to Adam and Eve and the hiddenness of the body, he's also connecting it to our way of hiding from each other. What do Adam and Eve do when they eat the fruit from the tree? They hide. They hide themselves. And then they're ashamed. They make clothes to hide their bodies from each other for whom they were made and from the creator who made them. They're already hiding their humanity from one another in a way that we never quite get past. So how does this open up? He starts to talk then about creation. Speak that I may see you is an ancient motto he uses. This is a quotation in which it appears, this wish was fulfilled by creation, which is a speech to creatures through creatures. For day unto day utters speech, and night unto night shows knowledge. This is from Psalm 19. But the notion of, well, the, the, the day unto day utter speech is from, nine, is from Psalm 19. The notion that creation is God's speech is a curious one, because that means creation itself is a revelation of God. But it's a clothed one. It's a hidden one. It's a revelation in which God has been, has draped himself in his word so that we do not get him naked, but in a form that we can deal with and that he is not always terrifying to us in. This is a clothed revelation. God's hiding in it. It's not naked transparency. You don't look up through it. You don't just look out at the night sky and say, now I understand God. Even Abraham, when he looked up at the night sky, he had to have a promise from God for it to mean anything. Haman goes further. This is a decade later. You can read the title, The Last Will and Testament of the Night of the Rose Cross Concerning the Divine and Human Origin of Language. 
right? These incredible titles are part of his style. Every phenomenon of nature was a word. The sign, symbol, and pledge of a new, secret, inexpressible, but all the more fervent union, fellowship, and communion of divine energies and ideas. All that man heard at the beginning, saw with his eyes, looked upon, and his hands handled, was a living word, for God was the word. He looks at Genesis 1, where God speaks and makes, and he looks at John 1, in the beginning was the word. And he puts them together, and he says this. It's a point that's been made a few times in the history of Christian theology, but it's an incredibly powerful point. All things are words from God. We're not dealing with God's absence here. We're dealing with his presence clothed and hidden from us at all times. And so we have a problem. Our problem is that we tend to cut apart what belongs together and to lose both the creator and the creature. Even now, even today, even as you look around and touch things around you, everything you see and touch is a word from God. So why don't you perceive God in any of it? Why does nothing jump out at you as creature? Why do you see no creator behind it and in it? The picture I have at the bottom is a little bit of a naive view, right? It's a Bible open with the living word. I pulled it off some church website. I wanted to make a point. Haman also thinks the Bible, not Haman, yeah, Haman also thinks the Bible is the living word. But we should not forget the creation is too. They're different. They're very different. But things are living words from God. Creation has a power here. The trouble is this book of nature is scrambled. This is actually the way he describes it. He describes it as jumbled verses and the limbs of the dismembered poet, right? God is the poet of nature. Now he says God has effectively been dismembered in it, cut apart by our philosophy, our attempting to, to reason through these matters. We can try to interpret nature, know something about God. We can try to look around at each other study artificial intelligence, study biology, study human cultures, and know something about the image of God, but we're never going to put it together. We will not know what a human being really is that way. The only one who can tell it to us is the poet himself. Or as Haman puts it, the poet at the beginning of days is the same as the thief at the end of days. And here he means the one who says that he comes like a thief in the night or the one who was crucified with two thieves like us. This one can tell us who we are. So we preach the Son. This is a long way of getting at this point. But I think it is the point. To know what a human being is, we can't even just study or look at Jesus. It's not as if Jesus were standing there right there and I could say, well, look at him. That's what a human being is. You'd see something just like me and just like you and you'd say, well, so what? He's not transparent. He's not a window into God in that way. He is God. He has to be preached. The poet himself has to announce his image to his people. It has to give this to us again. 
There's a problem with silence. The problem with silence is unbelief. How am I still the image of God if I cannot hear? If I look around at creation and I cannot hear God speaking in it. If what we determined here is that this is not information that I'm getting, if it's not something that I can put together on my own, how do I know what I am? Am I even still the image of God if I can't hear him speaking? Unbelief isn't materialism. It's sometimes portrayed that way. Unbelief is the attempt to escape from creation. To speculate, to take flight from the body, from the sensory living reality in which we're embedded. In which God's word to us is clothed into naked speculation, into my ideas of the image of God. In this speculation, God and humanity are transparent. They're known. I know who and what I am when I have a theory about the image of God as, say, reason and free will. And so God is the most rational and the most free. Why are they known there? Because I made it up. Because they're invented. All human speculations about God and about ourselves are sheer invention. And so they feel very certain to us sometimes. But they stand on nothing. But we still have something. Hi, John. He wants to say hi to his daddy. Back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is where we wrap up. The word of the Lord remains forever. That's Isaiah 40. Or to put it differently, we still have this word from Genesis 1. We still have this odd phrase in the Bible staring us in the face that the human being is made in the image of God. And then we have it repeated in the New Testament about Jesus Christ being the image of the invisible God. We have it repeated that we are being transformed into his likeness and image. This word from God still comes to us. It still comes to us in creation, which is a kind of word from God. It's there in a book. It's not just an idea. You open a book, and there it is looking at you. It's on the dusty pages of your Bible. It's on the lips of your preachers. It has to be preached and said, hello, little man. We're wearing the same shirt. He's in my image. Or I'm in his because it's got his picture on it. Yeah, thank you. The point is that God hides here too in this word. In this word that says image of God. That says you and me and him and puts us together. What that word image of God means is that God himself has spoken one single word that takes you in all of your sin and all of your confusion about who he is and your wild speculations about God which get you nothing. And he has definitively placed himself together with you in this word so that you can hear it. And this word has a name. We know this name. This is Jesus. You've heard him before. So against all unbelief, against speculation, against silence, 
we preach this image of God. Our problem is that we don't really know what a human being is, and we're not, we can't resolve that by studying human beings, although studying human beings is fun. There's a bigger truth here. You all got your low anthropology stickers? Those are great. They're absolutely true, but don't mistake what they mean. Low anthropology absolutely means that you are from the dirt, and to dirt you will return. But we do not understand it rightly if we think that this does not also mean that we are the very dirt that God has wedded his own divine being to forever. God has married us here in this dirt. We don't know what a human being is because we can't see it. Or as the man said, what you will be has not yet been revealed. You can't see it yet. We should not put down the human being. The human being is God's own temple and image. The human being is God's own son. The human being is that to which God makes an eternal promise to take you as his own forever. Now, I don't know what a human being is, but I know that the day will come when I will, when I'm really going to see one for the first time. That's pretty cool, and it's all I got. Thanks.